Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Joe Lazinski from Development Specialists Incorporated, DSI. Joe is a Senior Managing Director at DSI. He has over 30 years of insolvency. You don't look that old, by the way. 30 years of insolvency, restructuring, crisis management, advisory, and fiduciary experience in a variety of industries. He has a background in accounting, which is super helpful. Began his career in a manufacturing organization, concentrating on cost accounting. Sounds really interesting. Also worked as a financial controller of a computer software developer. But today he concentrates on debtor advisory work, managing and operating distressed businesses as a chief restructuring officer or chief financial officer or advisor. And he serves in a variety of fiduciary capacities in chapter 11 cases, chapter 7 cases, receiverships, assignments for the benefit of creditors. He serves as a liquidating trustee. Joe has pretty much done it all. So welcome, Joe. We're very happy to have you. Thank you, Jeff and Brett. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share some time with you. Great to have you here, Joe. It's been a long time since we've actually seen each other in person. About a year-ish ago, I think. It's always nice to uh, reconnect. Yeah. So Joe, you want to tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to this practice? Sure, sure. I uh, started out in college not really knowing exactly what I was going to do. And I thought, well, accounting seems like a good idea because I can always take that and go in different directions with it. And ultimately, I muddled my way through an accounting degree. First job out of school was in a manufacturing organization, did some cost accounting, learned more about accounting in that year and a half probably than I did in my educational experiences. Mm -hmm. Ironically, cost accounting was one of the few college courses I ever dropped, but I had to take it again to, uh, to graduate. So my penance for that was to, <laughs> to work, work in cost in accounting field. for a period of time post-college. So yeah. thereafter, so, I went to work for a little computer software company in Miami as a you know, financial person. And this company was very good at raising money. They were excellent at spending money, but they never made a dime. They were always raising money and going on to the next big thing. And, you know, they were a startup before startups were a thing. And, and they were very, very astute at trying to spin together a good deal to go public and everybody was going to be rich. But ultimately, the board of this company really bought into some of the products. They were doing PC-based products that were essentially computerized books back in the mid-1980s, which was fairly cutting-edge stuff. and. Uh, they had some big company, publishing company clients and a few other managerial kind of clients that liked the product, but the product really didn't ever reach any commercial success. And so the board brought this company from Chicago in. The board members were guys who were predominantly from Illinois, and they brought this group, DSI, Development Specialist, the guy named Bill Brandt, in to kind of kick the tires on this company. And Bill was a fairly dynamic guy who cut his teeth working in troubled businesses and. Uh, Suffice is to say, as I noted, you know, they were good at raising money, not good at making money. There were a lot of problems. And ultimately, at that time, I was fairly young, mid-20s, and feeling like, well, this is a dumpster fire here and it's a mess, but it's kind of interesting. So I'll hang around for a little while and see what happens. And so I spent about two years doing an out-of-court workout of this company, cleaning up the issues, cleaning up lots of technical issues private placements, tax documentation, product commitments, contracts, and that. And then thereafter, 
I went to work for DSI. And so when you make the comment about me not looking that old, part of being in the workout business for so long is that I started at a very young age. Yeah. And so I uh, carried a few people's briefcases for a number of years. And, and, and it really takes a while to learn this business. You know, cash is yeah. cash. Business problems are business problems. But the nuances of every case are a little bit different. And even at this point, there's always more to be learned every day in a new case. You know, many things are the same, but there's always people, places, and things that change. And as you know, from your practices of law, situations evolve, the way things are approached evolves. You know, years ago, a workout, six months, year, 18 months, you know, now that time frame is compressed down to, you know, 90, 120 days. If it doesn't happen fast, likely it doesn't happen. So, you know, we adapt, we change, we morph, but at the end of the day, best practices and the accounting financial background and working with quality people are a couple of the hallmarks that have given me success in this business over the years, along with being fairly well organized. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I would think that your perspective as a client, you started out basically as a client on the other side of the workout, on the, you know, the receiving side of the workout restructuring. And I would imagine that that you know, you found that to be really helpful in the practice, having been on that side of the of the fence. Excellent question. And yes, I have the, you know, there's an element of compassion in this business, even though some business owners are in the worst place they can be from yeah. a business perspective. You know, oftentimes there are personal issues there as well, whether it's personal debts or, you know, relationship problems. And so there is an element of compassion that I can say, yeah, I know what it feels like to sit in that seat. I know what it feels like wringing your hands. Are we going to make the payroll? How do we do this? You know, we don't have enough money to pay everything. What are we going to do? And it definitely, you realize, and you know, one of my favorite quotes is uh, Winston Churchill, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah. And ultimately you can keep going, but you do have to be a realist and make difficult decisions. Otherwise, things just cascade in whatever direction inertia will take them. So your role, as Jeff indicated in the introduction to the bio, you go sometimes from chief restructuring officer, you get brought in while the company's still operating, right, in an effort to try to help and save it and do work out outside of court. You also are a chapter 11 trustee or maybe a CRO debtor in possession in court while it's in bankruptcy. And then so you come in sometimes and handle post-litigation, right? Post-confirmation, I should say handling litigation, whether in a bankruptcy or even an assignment for the benefit of creditors. Can you walk us through and our audience through how your approach or mindset may change sort of as that role morphs? Yeah, I think that the approach really is on a topside basis. There needs to be some reasonable assessment of what's possible. In many situations, you know, businesses, if afforded enough time, have the flexibility to possibly retool recalibrate, maybe do some operational restructuring, not just the balance sheet restructuring, you know, actually fixing the business as opposed to just fixing the balance sheet, which is really what happens in the vast majority of uh, restructurings nowadays. There are more debt restructurings than business restructurings. But if given the runway of time to do that, you have a lot more flexibility. In situations where you're at the 11th hour and limitations of bank agreements and timing are such that you really don't have a lot of options. Those are more situations where you have to just make the best of a bad situation, whether that is a quick chapter 11, a little bit of breathing room, possibly a sale process, or the difficult decision of a significant downsizing employee furloughs, or of just 
pulling the plug and saying, you know, this really isn't a viable business model. We don't have any capacity to fund X million dollars it may take to operate this business for 60 or 90 days to try to figure it out. And so coming in, I liken it to the fire alarm at the firehouse. Mm -hmm. You know, the fire alarm rings, we go oftentimes fairly stone cold into a situation. So, you know, the basic triage of cash, what are the issues? What are the wolves at the door? What's the temperature of your creditors, your lenders? Are they willing to work with you for a week, a month? In a perfect world, it's nice to buy a week. Over a week, (laughs) we can get a deeper dive into what's a 30, 60, 90 day cash flow look like. And then maybe that spins into something larger plan process, thought process as to how to restructure the business. But in the short term, if you're bouncing payroll, you have no financing and no capacity, that puts you kind of as the saying goes, behind the eight ball. And uh, you've got to deal with those realities too. Yeah. And I think those are the times when you mentioned this before, the the compassion comes in, especially with small to mid-sized businesses or at least closely held companies where a family or individual or group of individuals has invested their whole life into building something and now they're watching it collapse. And I think you, obviously you bring not only compassion, but an outsider's perspective from the inside. And so... We always say it's hard to see the picture when you're in the frame. And so you come in from outside and say, hey, look, you know, let me shed light on this problem, this problem, this problem, and maybe we can solve two of them, but the other three are, are impossible. I appreciate what you said about bringing compassion to the table because I think it's just so important in what we do. Yeah, it's a leadership issue too. There are always hard decisions that have to be made in these things. Making a determination to furlough a third of the workforce. Well, yeah, that's really hard on that third. But if it preserves the other two-thirds in the go-forward business, there's a tremendous amount of value there for all constituents. You know, maybe not that third of the people who are getting furloughed. Some of them maybe just by circumstance or what have you, not necessarily for bad behavior or poor performance. It's just you don't need 20 salesmen if you're only selling a third of what you sold the year before. So you have to lose some in order to, to balance the equities of cost versus benefit. Yeah. And I think to Brett's point before about the timing of the various stages, you have uh, some are workouts, some are restructuring informal or out of court, and some are liquidations. I imagine when you get brought in is a critical question that derives the answers to what options are available. The earlier they bring you in, the better. So I guess the question is, who brings you in and when? Yeah, another Interesting question that unfortunately has a fair amount of human nature involved in it. Oftentimes, business owners, small business owners, family business owners, small public companies, frankly, they're embarrassed. They're not happy that things aren't working out. Some are the eternal optimist. Next month's going to be better. We're going to sell our way out of this. Some are the kind of, it's blame transference. The damn bank, you know, if the bank would just loan us more money, we could work our way through (laughs) this. And then there's those that are kind of slip into their shell and don't know what to do. You know, if I keep thinking about this, maybe we'll find a solution. And so we have to embrace all of these ideas and come up with, well, here's what we got to do. We got to figure out a plan for the next week. You know, what can we do? What might we be able to do over the course of the next week? And can we get anybody else to support us doing that for a week? Typically, when someone new is invited into the process, you know, a third party, typically lenders or major creditor constituencies will give a little bit of deference to have an independent set of eyes and ears because, as we know, they don't want to be arbitrary and they don't want to 
open themselves up to any potential exposure for litigation of pushing the business over the edge of the cliff. If the business is hanging at the edge, they mm -hmm. frankly would rather have the business fall on their own. And so <laughs> there are various ways to cover for lenders and creditors to cover themselves while giving the business a little bit of time and unpacking that suitcase of all those issues. It's fun. It's exciting, but it's also a pressure cooker and it's stressful at times because you have to make a lot of long-range decisions with a very limited amount of information. So for those that are listening, either the lawyers or potential fiduciaries that maybe clearly don't have the experience you have, what are some key pointers that you would give them when that there's a bankruptcy filing and a fiduciary has been appointed, either an 11 trustee, a 7 trustee, or even a receivership or an assignment, right? Where you're a court-appointed fiduciary and you're now in... And where do you go from there? What do you do to, to try to get a great handle on what's going on? What are the issues, the empathy, compassion you talked about, and then looking forward as to your, you know, the goals, like what are the goals in the case? Yeah, this is an exercise in managing people and understanding people. You know, oftentimes, as I mentioned, some debtor, some business owners, they want to blame everybody else. It's not their fault. It's somebody else's fault. So we have to discern who really understands the business and what level of understanding they have that can you translate into a short-term plan? For instance, you know, usually somebody in the financial side's got a pretty good handle on the numbers, and that's always a good place to start. You know, we love dumpster diving into financial information. You know, gee, your, your published financial statements indicate you get a 20% margin, but yet there's all these other things out here that suggest you have a, an 8% margin. Help me understand that. Oh, yeah, well, this is a special one-off thing, and this is a below-the-line item. So my phrase for that is there's a lot of recurring, non-recurring events here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so you got to be realistic because if you're right. not making a reasonable profit on whatever it is that you do, then you either have to redo it or you have to consider doing something else. But companies, you know, I've been toe-to-toe -to -toe with CEOs of companies that say, you know, we have a 20% margin in our product because that's what we have. That's what we've had for years. That's what we've always had with absolutely no empirical data to back it up. Right. So peeling back the veneer of what people think their business is doing versus what it's actually doing. And typically, if you go a level or two behind the C-suite executives, you get a little bit more color on some of that. So we'd like to understand who's spinning the hamster wheel in the business, who has their finger on the pulse of the day-to-day -day business. And you can pretty well discern from dealing with people at a high level that they're really understand the business mm -hmm. or really don't. Example, been involved with a lot of family-run businesses over the years where dad or mom was the founder. They worked it day and night for 30 years, always had their finger on the pulse, knew the industry like the back of their hand. But yet son or daughter comes into the business and just think, man, this is a cash cow. It's yeah. a great deal. I get to go to work every day. I don't have to work <laughs> that hard. I make a lot of money. I got a nice leased Porsche out in the parking lot. And when times get tough, they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Some of these second or third generation businesses, family businesses, and in some instances, mom or dad, the patriarch is a very kingly kind of ruler where it's their way or the highway. And they're, the good news is they were really good at it for a period of time, but businesses and industries change over time. And so what worked 20 years ago may not work today. So sorting out some of those issues is something that we, we try to spend a little bit of time with. And then the reality is taking a pulse on, you know, what are the outsiders who have a stake in this think? What does the bank think? What does the bank's 
if it's a big enough credit, banks will have their own advisors in there. They'll have some opinions and some thoughts, Mm -hmm. some areas. Hey, maybe you should focus on here. Maybe we think that there's a problem in this area of the business. Some of the major creditors, you know, hey, why did you stop working with us? Why did you stop working with the company? Well, non-payment's an easy one, but oftentimes there's more than that. Changing orders, canceling things, too much handling, too much TLC necessary. Mm -hmm. At some point in the supply chain world that we have all these problems with nowadays, this is a huge issue. You know, you don't get a redo. You don't get to say midstream, oh, by the way, we wanted 20 of those instead of 40. And we wanted them in this color versus that color. You know, those at the moment, those things are really, really critical business problems that don't have an answer. And so somebody's got to eat that problem. And figuring out where those things lie, is it a communication issue? Is it a management issue? You know, the classic business failure problems, cash flow, poor management, Mm -hmm. overexpansion, overestimating, and frankly, budgeting is a huge issue. Many lack of it. Sizable <laughs> yeah. companies yeah. <clears throat> do not operate with budgets and forecasts and they don't hold themselves accountable. And so when you come in sometimes and try to say, well, what are we measuring against? It's a difficult measurement tool because there really isn't a standard there. And I imagine like to Brett's question about what the ownership should be thinking about when you're appointed. I imagine that in the Majority of court appointments, so where you're appointed, meaning there was a fight, typically there's a fight, somebody's moving for the appointment of of a Joe Lazinski, a bank, a lender, some creditor group, and the company's fighting it, you get appointed, and you're viewed as the enemy, but really you're not. Or maybe you're out of court, and the bank recommends that they hire you or requires that you're hired. I imagine there's a lot of resistance to getting you involved. How do you approach that? How do you overcome that? We don't quite show up for work every day wearing a a black and white striped shirt, (laughs) but we work very, very hard to try to be fair and impartial. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're certainly, we're human. We have our own views. We have our own observations, but we don't automatically jump to conclusions. If there is a multi-party dispute, we give everybody a little equal airtime, at least hear their side of the story, try to understand what their views are. In some instances, the parties agree on the appointment of a fiduciary, and in other instances, the fiduciary is kind of jammed down their throat. And of all of the kinds of cases I've had over the years, you can pretty well line up, you know, the bank parties, the creditor parties, the bondholders, you know, everybody along the capital stacks got their own little agenda. And that doesn't dramatically change from case to case. But what does change from time to time is how you manage through that. Some of the nastiest cases I've ever been involved in were what I would call business divorces, Mm. 50-50 shareholder disputes. It was one case in particular I had years ago. It was a receivership case where both parties agreed to the appointment of a receiver. I was vetted by both sides. I got appointed as a receiver. And immediately, it was a father and a son who worked together for 40 years. Dad came to son one day and said, I want you to buy me out. I think my share of the business is worth $4 million. Please write me a check. <laughs> Son said, Dad, I love you, but no way, no how. Right. And Dad just went crazy and said, well, if you're not going to buy this business from me, I'm going to destroy it. Oh, and so they started fighting oh, man. and litigating. And they litigated for a couple of years. And, you know, there's an obscure statute in the Florida statutes about deadlocked shareholders and disputes and 
So I got appointed via that with very little detail as to what my duties were. I was handed a viable ongoing small business where I got put into a love triangle. If I agreed with dad, son was not happy. If I agreed with son, dad was sending me letters saying he was going to sue me for not discharging my duties. Ultimately, we took this business apart. We made interim shareholder distributions before the case was over because there was so much money in the bank. I mean, it was a viable business. But yet, after about two years, the court was kind enough to approve and allow my fee and let me out with no further need to do anything. Father and son went on to litigate with each other for at least two more years thereafter and probably spend most of their gains from the years that they worked together fighting each other as Mm -hmm. opposed to putting it into their childhood dream of doing something else or putting it into uh, some other charitable purpose. They just agreed to disagree with each other, and it was just mean-spirited and nasty. It was one of the nastiest cases I've had in 30 years. Business divorces are nasty, but family business divorces are the, like, they're the nastiest, right? I mean, because you get the family issues involved and sides pitting, you know, one against the other. And you get caught sometimes in the middle, like you said, and that's where the nuance and the compassion comes in. But really understanding what your role is there is super important, right? Because like, what am I here for? Why am I here? And let me focus on trying to get that done and try and get out if I can, or try to bring the parties together, right? I know there's probably some times where you're in that situation and maybe you're acting like the mediator almost. Uh, Yeah, excellent point. And there's another leg to that stool too, and that is the court. Yep. You know, many times you'll have a court that is very knowledgeable and understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of the parties. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, as a fiduciary, you're an officer of the court. And so ultimately, my biggest audience is not shareholder A or shareholder B. It's the judge and making sure that I'm discharging my duties, both to the best of my ability, but also in line with what the court's views and thinking are. So if the court is going to support what I'm doing, it makes life a lot easier. But I've been involved in several state court matters where the judge is really not, and I say this, I don't mean to disparage state court judges, but the quality of judges sometimes a little better, a little worse. Mm -hmm. Some judges like to work, some don't. And I've been in a few matters where the judge would never resolve anything and just kick the can down the road, assuming the parties are going to go out and solve it on their own. And when you're in these really, really heated disputes, that just takes longer and costs more because there's no real desire to resolve it. Yeah, and you'd wish sometimes judges would read the room a bit on some of those cases when realizing that the parties are not going to just go out and solve it themselves. Like they need some assistance. And that's where you would come in or the court would come in to try and help with that. But you do bring up a good point too about actual, even though I'm not a mediator, I don't do mediation work, I'm not a lawyer, but mediation is a very viable, usable tool these days Mm -hmm. to resolve more than just nasty disputes. I mean, there's a lot of quality mediators there who can, in a reasonably short period of time, dial into what the real issues are. And, you know, a good mediator will push both sides with the weaknesses of their case and hopefully push them towards the center. And so I've had pretty good success over the last 10 years or so resolving things that were pretty difficult to resolve through mediation. The difference is you are, like you said, you're appointed by the court. You're really an extension of the court, but the judge can't go down to the facility and, you know, log onto the computer and start looking around to figure out what, who's right and who's wrong. And so you have a unique perspective that no one else can have. But I think to the point you made before, the critical component of having a fiduciary appointed 
is clearly defining that fiduciary's role. Are you there just to preserve the assets? Are you there to sell it? Or, you know, what exactly is your role? And I imagine that I suspect a lot of people who don't do a lot of this work don't really appreciate that nuance. One of my favorite stories a lawyer told me once was a judge. He was filing on behalf of a lender. He was filing an action and asking for the appointment of a receiver and proposed somebody to be the receiver. And the judge struck out that name and inserted the name of his brother-in-law's son or whatever, who was a professional bowler, <laughs> to be the receiver of this company. Was it, was it a bowling alley? Was the company oh, bowling? Oh, my God. But that's, that's life. There are just curveballs that come at you occasionally. Yeah. And you have to be ready because you just don't know occasionally what's going to happen next. And, you know, good things happen. We've had cases that had limited assets, but they had key man life insurance and one of the officers died. So, right. you know, suddenly the case has money because the yep. key man life insurance right. kicked in. Not that we ever would want any officers of companies to die just for collecting of the insurance. But over the years, you see a lot of interesting things. You hear a lot of strange stories. And again, as I said earlier, there's always something to be learned in every case. Every day yeah. is a new day. And there's always nuances that can refract or change the direction of a case. Yeah. I'd imagine that no two cases are the same for you. Is that a fair assessment? That is an assessment, although I will say from time to time, you see fact patterns and say like, ooh, I've been to this movie before. Right. <laughs> Boy, it didn't work out very well the last right. time, so I might want to do things a little differently this time, anticipating pitfalls or potholes that may be coming down the road. Sure. Some may be sexier than others, but... In some of our cases, you might have encountered the same fact pattern, but... If the personalities are different, if it's this fact pattern, but this one's a father-son, the other one's, you know, not a father-son, they can resolve differently. And I mean, I've seen instances where the same lender in different cases acts in an entirely different manner. So I'm sure you've you know, encountered that as well. So, yeah, there is no size fits all. In order to be, I'm not a judge, but certainly you have to work with the facts and the circumstances of this matter that are in front of you at this point in time. Certainly, we all rely on our experience and our prior practice that helps give us foundation to make hopefully good decisions. But ultimately, the evidence of this case may cause you to come to a different conclusion than you did in the last one, even though the underlying facts are essentially the same. But yeah. the evidence may be a little bit different. There may be a, a reason why this business, even though it looks really bad, you know, if they can just do one thing they might be able to get over that little hump there and retool the business as opposed to just saying, you know, this is a wipeout. Let's pull the plug and sweep mm -hmm. up the broken glass and clean it up. Yeah, I would imagine that each case too is just, obviously there's some level of market factor in there too, right? Like wrong place, wrong time. If suddenly you're in certain kind of business and I don't know, a pandemic, pandemic hits yeah. and you know, everything <laughs> shuts down and you can't withstand you have enough cash, like nobody would have that kind of cash on hand for a small business, perhaps, and not ride it out. So yeah, the good news is if everybody's in the same bad place yep. in your industry at the same time, yep. that's a decent fact. Yeah. If many of the people in your industry are doing really, really well, and mm -hmm. you're not, that shines a spotlight on there's something going on with your business model that may not be suitable or, yeah. or workable in this current environment. Again, going back to the, you know, the basics of expansion, overexpansion, cash, liquidity, poor choices, poor management. So as we sit here, January of 2022, starting the new year, hopefully moving beyond COVID at some point, where do you see sort of this 
the economy or sort of the insolvency industry, if you will, where do you see some soft spots where things may start to perk up a little bit? Everybody in the industry has been awaiting the crush of business that hasn't come. I think that the government stimulus programs and government gifting of monies to various people and businesses has generated a significant cause for the most businesses to be very static. When I say static, I mean they're not moving forward or moving backwards. Mm-hmm. They're just static. You know, historically, there's a turnover in most every industry every year. You know, the bottom 10, 15, 20% of businesses get cleaned out. Investors move their monies to other investments. And, you know, that's a natural capitalist cycle. And I think the last two years and the trillions of dollars of money that's been out there, interest rates being as incredibly low as they are, and lenders not wanting to take back lots of troubled assets all in one lump, has kind of caused a malaise where everybody wants to just wait a little bit longer and try to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of businesses that should have been gone a year or two ago are still hanging by their fingernails because of government funding in part. A lot of lenders have been willing to forbear because, you know, they probably have quarterly earnings. You know, a lot of them moved a lot of loans into non-accrual status. And apparently in the last quarter, some of them are moving some of that money back out because the loan losses haven't been as great as they would have expected. But ultimately, I think the normal reality has to return at some point. Interest rates have to go up at some point. Government stimulus appears to be tapering. And I think a lot of businesses that are out there will start to clean up the lower echelons of those industries. And I think that will happen partially with an increase in liquidations. You know, we have not had a robust Chapter 11 restructuring business over the last 18 months or so. But the liquidation business seems to be picking up the opportunities to do We're not talking about put a padlock on it and sell it kind of liquidations. We're talking about high-end liquidations, businesses that had tens or hundreds of millions of dollars invested in them. They have fancy intellectual property and some reasonable assets, but at the moment, they don't have the capacity to fund going forward. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of businesses like that that I think are going to be failing over the course of the next year or so. And that will then, I think, initiate another wave of new business opportunities where others take on some of these failures and take them to the next level or put it in a new business model or have a different business plan to leverage the value of those assets in a different way. The traditional industries, I mean, who knows? Retail seems to be on the mend after having a terrible time. The hospitality industries up and down. Labor shortages is just a challenge that everybody's suffering with. That's not put upon anybody in particular. And I think just that's got to smooth out. And it's probably going to take a year or more for those kinds of issues to kind of smooth out to get back to a a regular or normal economy if there is such a thing. That's a darn good answer. I got to tell you, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. It's a lot more than just the government stimulus. And I know you recognize that. I agree. I think we've been on pause basically for two years. I think in the beginning of the pandemic, our phones were ringing off the hook, everybody panicking and freaking out. And, you know, we had, we talked to a lot of people and then they realized there was stimulus, there was some sympathy out there, some uncertainty and surprise, but eventually all that stuff's wearing off. It's going to wear off and we're going to see some failure. I think we saw, I think what happened is a lot of businesses closed just quietly overnight, essentially, without the typical fanfare that we might otherwise see. And then 
but I agree that the flood's coming. And I think some of the labor shortages and even just the COVID sicknesses, sick outs, if you will, right? Like, I, I don't know about you, I've gone to some restaurants, tried to order and they're closed or they're only doing online because they can't staff the restaurant. And how long can a small business withstand that, you know? And so I think there'll be some of them. And same thing with stores, retail, small stores. How long yeah, can they withstand that? Yeah. And they got to pay more for staffing and you have to pay more for electricity and food for a restaurant and how much can you really pass on? So, I mean, it's real. Yeah, I'm an old school kind of guy. I like a little personal service. It's nice to go out to a restaurant and be served in that. But these days, it's tough. It is. It's yeah. tough to even a couple of the nicer places that I frequent from time to time. Service is not that good. Yeah, the I, training's not that good. I and I mean, I'm old and I'm spoiled, but there's an opportunity there too. Yeah. Yep. You know, there's an opportunity for not everyone is going to be a college graduate MBA who's going to go work in the high-tech industry and become a mover and shaker. There certainly are a lot of jobs in our economy that were never intended to be family of four right. primary wage earner jobs. Right. You know, when I worked for minimum wage as a teenager, you know, I was a teenager. It was pocket money. The notion that the minimum wage is something that should feed a family of four is tricky. Yeah. You know, there, there's just those are entry-level jobs, and I get it. They're bad jobs. You know, nobody wants to be a bus person or a dishwasher or what have you for $9 or $12 an hour. But at some level, you know, the economy is really difficult to sustain paying those jobs $30 an hour because then everybody who's making $30 an hour should get $50 an hour. Right, and, yeah. you know, unfortunately, over the last 30 years, mm -hmm. we've offshored a lot of our middle-class job base. And, you know, if there's a long-term impact on our economy here, it may be to bring some of that manufacturing back, both to sustain the supply chain. And I think Toyota hit it on the head when they said, we've switched from just-in-time inventory to just-in-case. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, like many businesses, are now not worrying about, okay, we're going to make it on Wednesday, the parts will show up on Tuesday. They're going to make it on Wednesday. The parts were here six months ago because we want a six-month supply of these critical parts in yeah. order to make what we make, in order to maintain our budgets and cash flows and forecasts yeah. and so have, so on and so forth. And so, you know, the automotive chip business has gotten a tremendous amount of airtime. And I think that automotive chips, every car has hundreds, if not thousands of them, and they're very, very cheap. And so in an economy where you have limited resources mm -hmm. and limited labor, they're not making the cheap chips. Yeah. They're making the expensive ones. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> They're sure. making the ones that go cheap. into video game yeah, consoles. Yeah, gaming that, consoles, yeah. That cost, exactly. you know, $200 a chip instead yeah. of $6 a chip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, from what I read, forecasts, you know, it, it's probably another year or more before some of that supply chain settles out. But bringing some of those manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. and, and bringing some of the pharmaceutical jobs back to the U.S., would create more stability in our supply chain. We'll also create more mid-level jobs in our economy, yeah. which really has been a problem. I mean, you know, the news media loves to report on how the richest people in the world are getting richer and, you know, everybody else is getting poorer. And that is a fact. I don't dispute it. But America has always been a country of innovation, creativity, and capitalism. So there's a huge void there to be filled. And the race is on to see who's going to fill it. You know, that's the exciting part. Right. Unfortunately, it may take five or 10 years to realize that. Right. But Like where the innovation is and like what's next, right. you know? You can't just build a chip factory next week. You know, yeah. it probably right. is a five-year project. Sure. 
you know. So should we have you back in five years when we can uh, <laughs> see if your prognostication is? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Joe, this is really great. I yeah. uh, really enjoyed having you on here. I always enjoy talking to you. always enjoy working with you. Hopefully, we have some opportunities in the near future. If you are listening to this podcast and you have any questions about the show or something we discussed or a question for Joe, by all means, reach out to him. You'll find his contact info in the show notes. And if there's any topics you want to hear from us in the future or you're interested in being a guest, please reach out to us directly. And if you enjoyed this episode, which I'm sure you did, please give us a five-star review, follow us, and share us with your friends and family. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Nelson. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you for the opportunity to come and chat. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.